one month away from college basketball. We hope, we think, we pray. Every day we get a little bit closer. There have been some bumps in the road, as one would expect. This is not going to be normal. This is not going to be easy. But here we are on October 26th, recording a podcast to preview a season that's supposed to start on November. And that makes me feel pretty good, Brad. Absolutely. I mean, we got a little scare this morning with the Orlando MTEs being canceled, which I think the uh, the main draws can kind of scurry and find a new location quickly. Uh, you know, the, our our opening day slate that Wednesday before Thanksgiving was looking pretty strong. I really needed the times, you know, the amount so I could determine whether I was taking a half day or not day before Thanksgiving, but. You know, I think from, from what was originally scheduled, as long as they can give us Villanova Baylor and or one of those two versus Arizona State, you know, because you know you would think that that uh, tournament would be seeded like Baylor, Boston College, Villanova, Arizona State, but they were saying let's let's kick off opening night with the number two versus number three. You know, so, so that would. That would be fantastic. So hopefully that tournament can uh, can still get going, even if it were Villanova Arizona State. I mean that's a fantastic game. Um, so give us a couple games like that on Wednesday, you know, with with the flashy ranked teams that'll draw some casual casual interest, um, and then get in as many games as we can. I know every, uh, Maui is in no jeopardy of of going under because if if you want to leave Maui, supposedly it's like a thousand dollar fine. So those eight teams, for better, for better or for worse, are, are locked in for the long haul. And you know this is a pretty good year to be locked in. Yeah, I agree. I mean, as long as Maui is similarly obligated to make sure the event happens. I mean, as I understand it, the the situation at Disney was that. You know, there were there were a bunch of different testing protocols. Disney had its testing protocol, and the leagues all had their own testing protocols. And one example that was pointed out was the idea of retesting players who were previously tested positive, whether that should happen or not. Um, teams are concerned that if a player tests positive, they're going to be stuck quarantining the, the entire team, uh, even though that player is, is very possibly a false positive test. If you've been infected before, you can have dead virus that kind of lives in your nose for a while, as I understand with the PCR tests. So the you know, there's concern that if you're using PCR, you could pick up this dead virus that's not actually infectious um, and wind up having to quarantine a team in Disney, which would be very expensive for two weeks. And there were all sorts of little things like that that caused its demise. It sounds like Mohegan's safe. It sounds like the, the, the high-end Disney events may wind up either being played under the Disney umbrella or not in... Um, Indianapolis or Houston or somewhere like that, um, which would be good. But yes, the the opening day slate I think is very important, particularly because you know it's an opportunity, right? I mean, especially now that the NBA is planning to come back, um, likely before Christmas. Now, obviously, we could see things get pushed back, especially with the you know as we track the trajectory of the pandemic. But um, I know that there was a there's there's a, a release. A quote to Shams, I think that was like, yeah, the NBA makes like an extra six hundred million dollars or something by playing that day before thing by playing on Christmas, and I was like, yeah, you know, I think they're gonna find a way to uh to play on Christmas. So college basketball's month in the spotlight of basketball fans, 
um, begins with those non-conference games. It's important that they play them. Let's talk about it from the perspective of this, you know, conference-only swell that's begun. I don't think it's by any means a consensus around the, the, the landscape, but, you know, Gary Parrish wrote a column about it today. Uh, John Rothstein hinted at it. Matt Norlander said a couple of coaches mentioned it to him. What do you think of the idea that conference-only seasons, especially with extended conference-only seasons, would be an easier way of ensuring everyone plays enough games. I'm skeptical about that side of the argument. I think there's an argument to be made for doing conference only, but I don't think that, oh, making sure everyone gets to 13 games is the reason to go to conference only. Your thoughts? Yeah, so I don't see why you have to regulate it as conference only. Right? If, if a team wants to play a non-conference game, they should be able to play a non-conference game. The the non-conference games are extremely important for determining the strength of a conference. And now I saw Ken Palm saying, well, that's not an issue. We can just take the average of X amount of years. Right? But that that defeats the whole purpose because that has nothing to do with this year. right? That's like quoting historical records, right? You, you, you look at the conferences this year, and the Big 12 is up. The A-10 is up. The Big Ten is up, right? And the ACC is down. The SEC is a bit down. Big East might be a tad down, but it's mostly kind of steady. Uh, Mountain West is probably a little bit down at the top. So really, like this is a year where the A-10 could get three bids, maybe if things break right, four bids. Instead, with this historical average, you're probably giving two bids, you know? And in the ACC, they, they might only get six, but with a circle average, you might give eight. So that's that's not really a solution. It, it, it's it's basically kind of randomized. Like it's 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 putting no no real weight into this year because without non-conference, you can't weight the conferences, and there's no, no reason that teams can't. Like, why is it any different to play? Um, for Providence to play Georgetown versus Providence playing Holy Cross. I get that the testing capabilities are different, but you can catch the virus both ways. You can have Holy Cross agree that they need X amount of negative tests before coming over or something, you know? Right, yeah. I mean, again, I think think the challenge that the ESPN events faced was they were putting on so many different events they couldn't quite figure out were they a bubble or were they not. And they couldn't get teams from different leagues, particularly all these high major leagues to agree upon what they're doing. I think one of the main challenges, quite frankly, the big 10 and PAC 12 are going to mandate in order to play any contact sport, that teams undergo daily antigen testing, rapid antigen testing. And the sec in football, has essentially said we're not doing antigen testing because it's not it, it, it has too many false positives and it um you know it, it isn't working for what we want to do right and 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 there are different opinions of antigen versus pcr testing when you go throughout the college basketball call it sports landscape let alone the college basketball landscape so um, my guess is one of the concerns is that teams were debate you know teams were saying oh you know i don't 
you know, we're, we have to do these daily antigen tests in order to compete at the, in the Big Ten. We need everyone to do it. But, you know, we're not, you know, but but then, yeah, doing antigen tests because we're going to have a bunch of false positives and that doesn't work for us. So I think all those little things like that make it a lot more challenging in this big event format. Whereas, like, for instance, if you're saying, okay, we're going to do, you know, a random, you know, Providence wants to buy Holy Cross or, you know, you know, Providence wants to buy Sienna. And they could say, okay, well, there's three days before the game, and the Big East wants to do daily test, daily PCR testing. So, Sienna, you know, three days before the game, you need to test every single day and, you know, alert us if you have any positive results, right? Like, you do it that way, that's much easier to solve. And I think, I think it's a doable way of doing things in a conference. I think, I, I think at the end of the day, you play as many games as you possibly can, essentially until December 20th. If you can play nine games or whatever, play nine games. If you can play four, play four. If you play one, play one. Right? Play ba- play basketball. Pitch the sport as a fun place to fun thing to do, fun thing to watch, and then start your conference games right before Christmas. Play conference games up until the last week of February, and then leave at least one week in the first week of March to make up games and make up as many games as you can. The thing is, like you can make up four games in a week easily. Especially at the neutral site. Now you could you could argue you could make up like seven in a week, but like we'll ignore we'll ignore that like it, that kind of ridiculousness and say you can make up four games in a, in a in a week. The idea that teams aren't going to be able to get to thirteen games unless you may play like twenty six conference games so that there's more games that are like make upable doesn't make any sense to me. I think it makes more sense to have the options to play as many games you want in the non conference to get some games in because you know for instance let's say Sienna gets it's four games in the Mohegan Sun Bubble, which are probably the most secure games they're going to have on the schedule this season. They get those four games in. They then, starting on like December 1st, once they're done with the Mohegan Bubble, will need to play nine games the rest of three, almost three and a half months until Selection Sunday to qualify for the NCAA tournament. If 13 is really the obstacle here, I'm really not buying that you can't figure that you can't figure this out. I think at the end of the day, and I've tweeted this a couple times in different forms, like everything seems impossible to work out on paper. And then once you're forced to work them out, because like, okay, the, the, the games are here, it just gets worked out. That's what college football essentially has had happen. They've learned on the fly and it has been a success. College football has played 90 college football's power five have played over 90% of scheduled games. The group of five is at something like 80, 80 to 85%. I was at a college football game this weekend, broadcasting it, working in the media. It ran very smoothly. And that has been the experience at most places around the country. There have been bumps, of course, but um, college sports work, sports work. Just get to that date, tip the ball off, play as many games as you can, and position teams to make the NCAA tournament. I think the having some kind of non-conference does that. I think giving teams as much flexibility as possible, whether that's, you know, WCC wanting to do a bubble, whether that's, you know, wanting to do some bubbles in the non-league, no bubbles, whatever. We're saying that from the beginning. Free teams up to make their own decisions that they think that they believe will be best for their programs, for their state's guidelines, whatever. Play as many games as possible. Celebrate this season and put 68 teams in an NCAA tournament come March. That's the goal. That's the only goal. Right, because what if, you know, we're in January and you get like two two teams that you're supposed to face in a row get corona. 
You know, you can throw a non-con game in there. You know, even if, say, half your non-con schedule gets wiped out because Orlando doesn't happen and then you hit a corona or something and have to quarantine, you want those games in your pocket. You know, what if you're fortunate enough that your schedule goes, uh, your conference schedule goes off without a hitch, and then you're looking and you have three weeks until the NCAA tournament and, and with a, with a no game scheduled, you know, you could throw a non-con in there, right? Having that, that flexibility is really the most important thing this year. Doesn't, I don't, I don't see why, why we need to break it out in terms of like conference can happen and, and non-conference can't like, as long as you have the flexibility, let's get as many games in as quickly as possible possible giving you as much kind of leeway in case of coronavirus bubble up for the ncaa tournament and let's let's survive till next year preach preach there was one other thing we wanted to mention didn't we before we get into get into the pack the main purpose of the preview i have a bone to pick i have a bone to pick with kentucky fans <laughs> so I'm over here praying for top 100 recruits before I go to sleep. I'm praying for top 150 recruits. I'm checking crystal ball every hour. We got Dayton fans are celebrating like they won the national championship over a top 50 recruit and a top 150 recruit, which I respect immensely. Yeah, Kentucky fans. One of their their beat writers tweeted out, he hopes Sky Clark comes in 2022 instead of 2021 because it might mess up their roster balance with all the other five stars they have coming in. And it might, it might be an issue to have Hunter Salas, the number six ranked recruit or whatever, with the number 20 recruit. You know, that could, that could be an issue. Let's let's save this five star recruit for for another year. We don't really want him for this year. We have so many five star recruits. Let's let, let's let's save save this one for a different year. Like, what what planet are we living on, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, it's just a different world there, and that's something that is just kind of somewhat difficult to accept as a fan of, I mean, you know, North, Northwestern gets it's like, gets a top 150s. You're like, all right, check it in. I mean, I, I still remember when North, North, Northwestern landed like Robbie Barron, people were like, in like disbelief, like, Oh my gosh, top 75 recruit is interested. He shows us over, you know, several high majors this is crazy. Like Pete Nance, you know, same thing. And, you know, they just live in a different world. I think, if you're Kentucky or you're any program, when a five star wants to come, they should come. Please immediately get there ASAP. You do not do not hold them up. You find a way to get them on the roster. You work it out from there. If your coach can't manage the chemistry with that, that's the coach's fault. That's my opinion. And so Kentucky's moving more toward grabbing some uh, four stars to try to fill out the roster. It's going to be so tough, though, because it's easy for the four-star like guys like Cameron Fletcher and Bryce Hopkins and Jacob Toppin 
it's easy for these guys on October 26th to say, okay, I'm willing to wait my turn. But when you're Bryce Hopkins and you're going to look around at this time, you know, in February of 2022, and everyone ranked around you is starting and playing a lot on tournament teams, and you're playing like eight minutes in the first half, it's not as easy to, uh, you know, the the grass starts to look greener elsewhere. Um, I, I just think it's too tough for those guys who have never had to wait their turn. And every other school that recruited them wouldn't make them wait their turn. And it's easy to say that that you're okay with it, but then when, when you're in practice, I don't think uh, I don't think it's super easy to stick around. So yes. so we'll see if Kentucky can can hold on to these guys, right? Or are they going to have to dip even lower? That they all um, Podzemensky, who's like a top fifty uh, shooter. Six six wing, they, they may end up have to, having to go on lower, maybe not as low as two fifty, but instead of getting top fifty guys, maybe go down to top top one hundred. Yeah, I think that's a, a reasonable point. I think also important in the kind of scheme that we've discussed many times with this, like just generally related to the concept of navigating the you know roster balance of these elite of these elite programs like every basketball player in the world no 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 basketball player in the world ever thinks to themselves you know i would go here but i think i'm not as good i'm not i don't think i'm good enough right like like we talked about them we'll talk about this with like with 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 some of the pac-12 teams we talked about with some transfers that they've reached on like aaron estrada being like a perfect example like me and you sitting here I mean, me in particular, who's watched Aaron Estrada, can sit there and be like, "No, no, no, baby, what is you doing? Like, you do, you, you're not, you're not an Oregon player. You know, you're a, you're a UMass player. You're a Nevada player. You're a, you know, Siena player. But in 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 their mind, okay, Oregon wants them, and I'm good enough. You know, I don't care that Amore Hardy averaged, you know, 14 a game on a top 100, uh, you know, top 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 one 100 or 120." UNLV team doesn't matter to me. You know th- that guy might not even start. I don't care. I'll, I'll, I'll of course play over Jalen Terry. Like, what are you talking about, right? Like, guys don't get it, and then they get the practice, and like, well, we're in trouble. We're blocked, and then they leave quickly. You know, it's kind of the Khalil Whitney type thing. So we'll see what happens. But I, I, I agree. I agree with you 100 that like expecting players to just get that like things. That, that they're not that they're not going to play, and that they need to make this smart decision based on roster balance is not is not it's not the normal it's not the norm among good among normal normal people normal basketball players it's not how you're wired. Right. On on to the Pac-12. Do the darn thing. Number one, both have Oregon. So I was I'm, getting close I'm to more Arizona more. State. Really. I considered. I think, dude, kind of diving in a little bit more over the weekend, my gap between Oregon and Arizona State grew. Um, I, I have Oregon tenth right now, first in the pack. Most people have them fifteen to twenty. The, the uh, 
reason for my optimism here is I'm, I'm buying all the Infali Dante stock. Right? Comes in late. Remember, there was that whole thing where like he wasn't allowed to enroll until like the second quarter. Um, I, don't, I don't remember why, but there was that whole thing. It was on eight, and he's hurt, and he already reclassified. So with with all those external factors, I think that we can realistically kind of throw throw out his uh, limited performance from last year and kind of look at it, look at him more as the dominant high school player he was. I think 12 points a game, eight, uh, uh, seven, eight rebounds. I think that's on the table for Dante in a major bounce back year and being one of the best big man, one of the best big men, if, if not the best big, the best big man in, in the entire conference. They have a, Sneaky NBA prospect and Chris Duarte, who's been getting some second-round buzz for the 2021 draft. Uh, really nice scoring wing. You have a versatile combo guard and Will Richardson, who took a nice jump last year as a sophomore. And then you're you're adding a few um, really interesting transfers, right? You have Amarui, who was part of um, a a Rutgers team that was better than the. Record shows. Um, they were they were trending in, in the right direction. He was a huge part. Um, he was hurt too. He was hurt when last year. No, during that Rutgers run. Oh, he had the, um, like this decap. He had like his knee kneecap dislocate or something, and so he was playing like half the year on like one leg, just like all grit. Yes. Yeah, so he he's he's going to be a perfect fit in there at the uh, power forward spot. Has already produced at the Big Ten level. Should should form a really nice uh, front court trio there with Amarui um, Dante, and then the starter from last year, Chandler Lawson, was a nice glue guy big. Uh, was probably going to be the team's sixth man. Um, and then, I think at this point we got to count the waivers, right? We 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 had to talk last week about Emoji Gibson and Mac McClung getting waivers, even though they haven't actually got them yet. This week we're going to have to do Figueroa and. Uh, Eric Stevenson from from Washington, assuming that they get waivers and adding Figueroa, another guy who's played on an NCAA tournament team. He's he's been uh, a really key piece both as a focal point and as a third option for St. John's. His game was kind of sloppy as a focal point, but now he can step back and be that third option next, maybe even fourth option, right? With Richardson, Duarte, and, and Dante, he he would be a really nice piece to slide in there uh, at at the three and go with the combo guard Richardson running the show. Um, and the, 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 the bench is deep, right? You have a very productive, a, another combo forward from the A-10, and Eric Williams, who put up 14 points a game at, at uh, Duquesne. He'll, he'll be able to play multiple positions for you. You can have a scoring guard from, from UNLV and Maury Hardy, play a little one, play a little two, be, be a nice piece off the bench. And then you have a top 70... Recruit coming in, who's a more traditional point guard in a Jalen Terry, who if he's ready to go, then then he can plug in, play north of 20 minutes a game, and really round out this deep and balanced uh, first place unit. And I think, you know, I think a lot of people point to okay, they lost Peyton Pritchard to to uh, graduation into the NBA, who was clearly their best player, one of the best players in the conference. Um, so they're not going to have that sort of dominant scoring guard presence, like a traditional point guard type, unless Terry's ready to go. He's not going to put up 20 points a game like uh, Pritchard did last year. 
But I think with the improved front court, certainly improved on the wings with, with uh, Figueroa and Amarui. And then the next step that both Richardson and uh, Duarte will take in the backcourt, for me, Oregon's the clear number one. I think if LJ is around, I feel very confident that they will be the best team in the league. I think generally the last you know couple of seasons, both Arizona State and Oregon have had their struggles in the conference. I think part of that might just be like kind of structurally the way the league is. You do those double road games, and but like they did lose to Oregon State. And Washington State, and you know, at one point we're nine and five in the league. Like they didn't dominate this thing last year, and they had by far the most talent. They've had you know significant talent in you know the previous season when they really poured it on late, figured it out, went to the Sweet Sixteen, but had you know needed that Pac-12 tournament run to get to the NCAA tournament. So it's not like there haven't been bumps in the road in the last couple of years for Dan Altman, and that does give me a little bit of pause, particularly with a team that. Um, I know Oregon has some of the stronger, stricter state restrictions in, in place. Uh, and I don't think that Oregon was able to have full basketball practice until um, into September. So missing out on summer, a full summer does hurt, specifically with all these younger guys. But I do agree that, especially with LJ, it's enough. Um, you know, Duarte is a guy that I think in particular is on pace to have a massive, massive year. Um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll equip him. He, he was a guy who played some point guard in high school and in, in Juco. And I think they just didn't need that from him last year. And, um, but I think he is capable of doing some shot creating at six, six, you know, capable of handing the ball, get to the free throw line. You know, he shot 34% for three. I think he's a little better. Um, so I think I agree. I agree with you there buying that stock, buying in Foley Dante stock as well. We were super high on him last year. I don't think he was, you know, he just never looked comfortable on the floor, uh, hoping he does figure it out because he has a chance to be one of the better players in the country. I think, honestly, you know, one of the real question marks for me is when you look at this group, they were so, so good shooting the ball last season. Pritchard was a 42% three-point shooter. Will Richardson, you know, I don't know how, how replicable what he did was, but you know, we shot 47%. Mathis shot 45%. He was a sniper. You know, can they replicate that without two of their, you know, elite, their two best shooters by far in Pritchard and Mathis and moving in a four-man who will play most of the time in Amarui, who is not a great shooter. He really struggled, um, particularly with the, you know, took a lot of long twos at Rutgers too. Didn't make, those a good clip. I think there was something like he was shooting like 22% on all other twos. I have to pull the T rank number, but I do remember tweeting about it at some point. Um, so, so I think that might be a little bit of a concern. You know, Dante's not a floor spacer. Maybe again with figure Figueroa, you can go smaller and play him at the four and then either Amari at the five or Dante at the five. But the, the spacing and shooting might be a significant drop off from, from last season when they were, you know, usually very small and switchable. You know, they were playing, really rotating through bodies, but oftentimes playing four guards uh, and then playing Justin at the five, who wasn't a, exactly a floor stretcher, but he was capable of playing on the perimeter, handling the ball, switching, et cetera. So I think the, the lineup versatility does take a little bit of a hit, 
Maybe that's where Eric Williams comes in or Chandler Lawson. But uh, talent-wise, they're right up there once again in this class they have coming into 2021. We'll continue that with Nathan Biddle, Frank Kepnang, Isaac Johnson, Jonathan Lawson. So I think that they're actually maybe even more switchable defensively this year, right? Because you're going to have Figueroa, who was also a 37% career three-point shooter on five attempts a game. You have him at 6'6". Amaru is a bulky 6'6". Duarte 6'6". Richardson 6'5". And yeah, then Amaru is not really a guy who's going to switch. Okay, well, well, then you have um, Eric Williams, who who you mentioned is 6'6". And then if you need to be extra switchable on defense instead of playing Dante at the 5, you go with Chandler Lawson. Yeah. Who, who at six eight is that kind of more more versatile archetype? Started twelve games last year for them um, as that kind of small ball five. Um, he he's someone who, who could add that kind of. Uh, I guess if 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 we're making a Warriors comparison, he could be the Kayvon Looney um, for them as well. So for me, they have that that switchable component. I think that they're the most talented team in the conference. For me, the the one big question would would be point guard play. Yeah. Like, can Will Richardson slash Duarte be enough point guard play? And Figueroa can do a little bit as well. Um, or can Jalen Terry give you confident point guard play? Um, that's that's the big question for me. But this has all the makings of a Pac-12 champion. Agreed. Um and I will just kind of say program-wise, and again, I think one of the crazy things is their ability year in and year out to just go get grad transfers that maybe fill a need, but don't feel like a pressing need, right? You know, a guy like Hardy will have a very significant role on this Oregon team, but, you know, could have went, you know, either stayed at UNLV and been, you know, the second or third banana on a team that could be top 75, even top top 50 if he had, if he had stayed or went to a place where he's, you know, the, the unquestioned starting point guard, the, you know, going going to have the ball in the head all the time. Sam Figueroa, you know, he leaves a spot at St. John's where he was getting all the shots. He'll play in a supporting cast role. Um, they did it, you know, last season with Anthony Mathis. You know, he's a perfect kind of plug-and-play guy, but he was, you know, not exactly a, you know, he, he also could have had a bigger role somewhere else. He only averaged 8.5 points a game, juiced in as well, role player, could have stayed at UNLV. Um, you know, so so, so it, it's very important that that you can do things like that. I think it really you know boosts a team's upside on a year-to-year basis. Um, but that was worth noting. Also worth noting that they've opened up two pipelines: the Canada to Oregon pipeline and the UNLV to Oregon pipeline. So uh, David Jenkins, we're looking at you. See you next year in uh, in Eugene, I believe. So was. Uh, refresh my memory. Did did Ben Carter go from UNLV to Oregon or from Oregon to U, to uh, UNLV? Hold on a moment. We'll confirm. Ben Carter, Oregon to UNLV. Oregon to UNLV. Or, so, so the pipeline works both ways. Um, Apparently. And then he obviously went to Michigan State, right? And yeah. and, and, and played over Jaron Jackson against Syracuse. Eight minutes a game, baby. Yeah, he, he was a solid player before the injury. But point stance. Yes. 
All right. Um, Shall we move on to Arizona State? Go for it. Arizona State is a very intriguing team. A lot of moving parts this offseason. But um, this is a, you know, they've been called guard you in the past. And this is a team that has as good a guards as I think Arizona State has had under Bobby Hurley and probably the most overall talent that they've had under Bobby Hurley. Obviously, you know, you know, this past season they were solid. Um, you know, year before they had Lugan Stork, year before that was the guard U team that started really hot with Shannon Evans and Trey Holder, uh, and then a freshman big man Romello White. Um, now Romello White is gone, grad transfers to Ole Miss. But the guards are are back and in full force. Only got better. They have Remy Martin, you know, a terrific veteran point guard, uh, who I think is probably a top five senior in the country. Uh, averaged 19 points, three rounds, four assists. Shot the ball very well as well. You know, he's a guy who only shot I think 34 percent from three, but you know, impacts it more than that because of his ability to shoot from pretty much anywhere on the floor. They have another guy who's really explosive in Alonzo Verge with the 51-point outburst in a game this season. Um, didn't shoot it great last year, but really dynamic with the ball in his hands, can create, can get to the rim, and uh, you know, really settles into that. Or maybe it was 43 that he had, not 51. I don't know where 51 got in my head. But he had some really big games down the stretch. He had 26 in a game against Oregon. He had 20 in the last game of their season against Washington State. Uh, so the guy can flat out score the basketball and do so in bunches. And I think that type of presence is valuable. They, they add to that scoring mold with the addition of five-star wing Josh Christopher. Consider a lot of different spots in the end. Winds up at Arizona State at home with his brother Caleb Christopher, uh, who did not play much as a freshman. Josh, the guy who wants to have the ball in his hands, um, I think the knock on him will be, you know, how much does he impact winning beyond just being a guy who can score? Arizona State already had that, but again, you never turn turn down a five-star. They also have a really interesting freshman, Marcus Bagley, who I think will be a key for them going smaller at six foot eight, um, top 50-ish recruit. They do have guys like Kamani Lawrence and Tayshawn Cherry, but it wouldn't surprise me if Bagley winds up being that real true pivot guy uh, at that power forward position. And then the transfers as well at guard. They had Luther Muhammad and Holland Woods. Looks like Muhammad will sit this year, but Holland Wood got the, got the waiver and decided to play once the blanket eligibility went through. He is a guy who uh, was the starting point guard, averaged 17 and 5 at Portland State, uh, and someone that you know probably only plays 15 minutes a game for this team. But again, you might as well take him. So this backcourt, as he said, so, so deep. They can play you know, three or four at once if they want to. The question comes out of the front court. Um, as we mentioned, with White leaving, now they're thin. We've been begging them to get a grad transfer. It sounds like Bobby Hurley is very confident in his center position without Hurley, particularly Jalen Graham. We have sophomore, averaged three and three last season, shot 69% from the field. He has a chance to be a breakout star. Yeah, for me, the two areas of concern with Arizona State. One was, despite being a team that was probably going to be like a nine seed last year, the uh, uh, bracket matrix had them as a ten seed. They they were sixty third in Ken Palm, um, so that's going to be quite a jump, especially when you downgrade at the center position. I don't care what Bobby Hurley says. This is a downgrade going from 
potentially a fifty-year senior in Romello White, who is your your anchor uh, defensively, almost a double-double guy. Um, Going go to a sophomore in uh, Jalen Graham, who you know played about eleven minutes a game. I I'm I'm sure Graham could be a competent center. Uh, we we see guys every year who go from that ten minute a game role as freshmen to uh, to a starter as a sophomore and are good, but like you you can't tell me that that, that that's not going to be a downgrade and you know to- totally uh, uh, dismissing White's contributions. White's off to Ole Miss to play the same role on a worse team, um, which you know for, for the sake of college basketball that was that was a head scratching decision. Uh, but I I think the the reasons for optimism for Arizona State. Is you have one of the best seniors in college basketball, Remy Martin, you have explosive scoring on on the wing, uh, with Verge moving moving up from the sixth sixth man role. Um, he he only started nine games last year, but was second leading scorer at 15 points a game. And then five star recruitment, Josh Christopher, and then you mentioned Hollins Woods, um, pr- providing a really really nice four man core there. Um, the so the the potential offensive firepower is the like the, the X factor is this this trio of kind of combo forward wing types where I I thought Kamani Lawrence was going to make the jump last year as a junior he only averaged five points a game Tayshawn Cherry was a top fifty recruit only averaged five points a game and now they have Marcus Bagley him down their necks one of these guys is probably going to have to play some minutes at the five too. Which Lawrence is very skinny and Cherry's more like a finesse guy, so, so maybe that's Bagley as a freshman playing some small ball five. But either way, they need at least one, if not two, of those guys to give you, uh, you know, really productive play. Um, I I have Arizona State second, and I have them twenty sixth right now nationally, so one spot outside the top twenty five, which is crazy because when they had Romello White, I, I was looking at these guys as maybe twelfth, thirteenth ish. Um, but then re- recalibrating now with Graham at center and them finishing third last year, um, has, has them still making a pretty sizable jump for me to 26. So I'm going to have Oregon State, or excuse me, Oregon closer to 15 and Arizona State closer to 20 in my top 25. Um, I think Graham is a guy that I wanted to explore a little bit further because I know you mentioned him and the jump being a challenge, especially to get to, you know, Romello white level. Um, but he did have, you know, very productive when he was on the floor freshman season, he had almost an 11% block rate. He shot 69% from the field. You know, he can really, you know, he can pretty much dunk anything. He's very athletic. Um, and you know, he was even better in, you know, conference conference games around the room against good teams against tier a and Ken Palm and their 12 games against tier a shot 72% from the field. So, you know, can he just be that, you know, kind of energy big man who's, who's active around the rim, block shots, gets up and down the floor. I think that's all they need from him, right? Like they don't ever have to draw up a play. They just need steady defense rebounding and, and they'll be set. And so Graham is a sophomore can he provide that? I, I think he can. Now, rebounding is, I think, a concern for me with this group. You know, they were one of the worst teams in the Pac-12 in that department. And losing a guy like White, who's a big, sturdy rebounder, 
does 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 definitely give me cause for pause in the words of Stephen A. Smith. Uh, so 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 certainly looking for for him to take a step there, uh, Jalen Graham, as well as some of these combo forwards like you mentioned. It feels like at times they just haven't gotten enough, you know, dirty work from Cherry and Lawrence, guys who are big and physical enough, particularly Lawrence, to do do what that do what it takes to help this team on the glass because otherwise I think you run into trouble in that department. But I'm gonna buy some Jalen Graham stock. I'm gonna buy the fact that this is one of the best backcourts that not just in the conference but in America. And I'm gonna hope that they can figure out this this you know hierarchy because that's the other place where this blows up is like Josh Christopher saying where are my 13 shots a game on the verge saying, where are my 13 shots a game? And Remy Martin sitting there going, well, I still get, you know, 13 shots a game. What are we doing here, folks? And so I think that's the main stumbling point for this group. But the talent is certainly there for Bobby Hurley to have, uh, you know, the best season, I think, that this program has had. It'll be impossible for him to top those uh, those those two months in, what was that, 2018? Uh, November, December. Winning at Kansas, Shannon Evans, Trey Holder, Cody Justice firing away. And then they regress to the mean. Way past the mean. They they, they went seven and eleven in conference, right? Yeah, because the mean for them was like a ten and eight season. So they had to they way overperformed, then they finished, you know, they regressed. Got to the mean. Speaking of regressing to the mean, or we'll see which which direction is 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 the mean for a UCLA where they you know, started off looking like a true rebuild, then they you're like crazy to the point where they 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 legitimately could have made a tournament. Um, yeah, so bracket matrix had them in as an eleven seed. Um, they finished seventy eight in Ken Bomb. So this is where we have to weigh. Was you know what was that end of the year run? Is that them showing their 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 true colors that they figured it out with this new coach, or is that just them them getting hot and now they'll kind of come back to earth? I'm leaning more toward that was them finding their true colors with the new coach. I flirted with having UCLA in, in the top 25. I'm going to have them at number 30, uh, which puts them third in the Pac-12. They're bringing a lot back, right? So they only lose Prince Ali and Alex Olashinsky. Uh, Olashinsky was a complete non-factor last year after being a solid piece in previous years. Prince Ali's been around forever. He was like a former UConn commit. He's a fifth-year senior. Uh, never really clicked. He had played a lot during his career. Uh, but both those guys should be easily replaced. The, 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 big, the big news for UCLA, right? So, so they lose Dacia Nix to the G League, which is unfortunate. But uh, Chris Smith returned after that that was not looking likely early in the offseason uh, he's someone who could be first team all pack 12 could slide in starting uh for them at at the forward spot it's really key for them um they they add johnny juzang from kentucky who on the surface that might not not look like a huge addition given his numbers last year but as you know that was him as a four-star uh freshman at, at kentucky I think he probably starts and gives this lineup some much needed shooting um, around the three returning kind of guards and wings there with 
uh, Chris Smith, who was the lone double-figure scorer last year for them. Uh, Jaime Jaquez, who's like a really, really nice glue guy who can also uh, shoot a little bit. A uh, very valuable piece. And then Tiger Campbell at, at a, five assists a game as a redshirt freshman last year coming off a, a major injury. I don't remember if it was ACL or Achilles. I think um, it was ACL. Was major, ACL. So those were three three young guys. Smith was one of the, the youngest guys in his class after reclassifying early in his career. And then two freshmen with Hawkins and Campbell. And you have a, another reclass freshman in there with Juzang and a couple of physical uh, veteran big men in Jalen Hill and, and uh, Cody Riley to, to man the middle. I think this roster fits together well. Uh, it's not going to have as much power as a Mick Cronin roster usually has with you know, basically playing two, two centers that are, are going to pound the offensive glass. Uh, but but there's a lot to like with this talent level. You know, all all these guys are former four-star recruits that are going to be in the mix, except for Jake Kyman, who uh, was a surprising three-star freshman last year with his ability to shoot. Uh, there's a pretty clear top nine. They got some veterans coming off the bench. I mentioned Kyman, uh, and then David Singleton and, and uh, Jules Bernard on the wing have also played rotation minutes. So this is a deep team, a talented team. Second year with a very, very good coach. Strong point guard play. Added some shooting. I have an NBA prospect in Chris Smith. Physical bigs. I think that UCLA makes that huge jump from 78th in Ken Palm to like 30th. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things is the parallel here with, with Texas um, that we talked about on the Big 12 podcast where you know, the perception of Texas last season until February 15th was like, this team is underachieved, team doesn't, you know, isn't very talented, Chalka needs to go, whatever. And February 15th happened, they went five in a row, they rattle them off. All right, now we're talking, now we've got this, you know, fringe NCAA tournament team, you've got the guys coming back, you've got a newcomer to that you like, and you start really getting hyped. And I think one of the challenging things here with with UCLA is like, do we buy that late season flourish? Right? Are we buying that as like, okay, they just figured it out with a new coach and McCrone and took them a little time, or are this like, okay, they won a bunch of close games in a league where like pretty much every game was winnable. There was no elite team. They didn't beat. It's not like they beat Oregon, who was twenty-four and seven in that stretch. They beat, you know, they're they're beating up on Arizona, kind of stumbled to the finish, beating up on Washington, which really stumbled to the finish. So, I mean, how much are we really buying this finish? And the other question being, do they have enough, you know, in terms of newcomers to justify the type of jump? Excuse me, as I drop my phone here, recording the podcast in this high-tech studio that is the desk that I do all my work at. Um, like, again, it's, it's challenging for me to navigate just how good UCLA was. I think a lot of these pieces are flawed. Like Tiger Campbell really can't shoot the ball. Um, you know, I'm not totally sure that Chris Smith is like a best player on a top 25 caliber team type of guy. Um, but I also think like they have enough guys up front who are good, Hawkwes is one of my favorite players in the country, just like the way that he plays, um, you know, really plugging into a role. And it's, again, I think if, if they can get, you know, 10, 11 points a game from Zhu Zhang, you know, decent minutes from Clark, 
this is a good enough team to you know be a top 25 caliber team potentially make the second weekend in this blue tournament if Mick Cronin can beat his NCAA tournament woes but um I just thought the comparison the parallel with Texas was was relatively interesting given um I think they're perceived similarly in the preseason and uh obviously had that great finish last season that changed the complexion this again this is a UCLA team that lost at home to Hofstra at who wasn't that bad, but they lost at home to a 20 loss Cal state Fullerton team. They lost to Washington state. You know, they got, you know, swept in their first home weekend in PAC 12 play by um, USC and Stanford. They weren't even competitive against Notre Dame, right? Like when you map through how bad this team was at times, and then say, oh, well, you know, they were actually, you know, going to the NCAA tournament. And they just speaks to the economy in that final month of the season and what they were able to do down the stretch. And so I think that's the main concern with this with this group. But the talent is there. I think McCrone is a good coach. And uh, I think they'll be ready to defend. Absolutely. And, and I think as, as a rule of thumb, uh, as I kind of mentioned with Enfali Dante, I'm just buying these highly rated recruits coming back for year two um, with a more clear role, right? Juzang, I think he, his, his is going to you know, really open up this uh, UCLA team. You know, I'm buying Dante. I'm buying Matthew Hurt and Wendell Moore. You know, just any, any situation. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm buying Jordan Brown. For Arizona, who, who we'll touch on in a little bit, um, I think I think people are really quick to uh, sell off those guys. Uh, hi, highly regarded freshmen who don't don't show it all right away. Maybe kind of squander their NBA, but they could still be a really really good player. So where do you have UCLA like nationally? Thirtieth. I think that feels feels right. Yeah. So I have. Uh, Oregon 10th, Arizona State 26th, UCLA 30th. And Kevin, do you want to hit on my 32nd ranked team, the Stanford Cardinal? Yes, let's do it. So Stanford would be a legitimate Pac-12 contender, would be a potential top 15 team, but unfortunately did lose the terrific Tyrell Terry, whose NBA stock seems to be a kind of open question, but it seems like he'll be a first-round pick. Could even sneak up into the late lottery, you know, at least into the late teens. Um, a very high-level shooter who transformed this team's ability to play on offense thanks to, you know, his ability to operate in ball screens, you know, and his ability to obviously make shots. Have the point guard position average of almost 15 points and three assists a game. Um, was a great, you know, one-two punch with Oscar De Silva, who really blossomed in his junior season. Now, they there is not all hope lost. I should I should point that out. They bring in another five-star recruit in Zaire Williams, 6'8", a long athletic combo forward who can handle the ball. He can defend several different positions. He can hit shots. He can slash. He's a guy who I think will be a very, you know, very productive freshman in college basketball. Might not put up, you know, massive, you know, earn headlines, especially where he's playing. But I think he'll average, you know, 13, 14 points, six rebounds, three assists, shoot 50% from the field, shoot 35% from three. And that type of player is extremely, extremely valuable. 
the big question now becomes that point guard position, um, particularly given the fact, you know, without Terry, they didn't have, you know, they would flex in Dejan Davis as the backup point guard when Terry wasn't on the floor. But if we're being completely honest, Terry wasn't off the floor all that often, especially when it mattered. Um, you know, this was a guy who was played about 86% of the team's minutes in the final five games of the season, um, flexed with Davis, who, again, can he play some point guard? Yes. Did he actually lead this team in assist rate? Yeah, he did. But he is not a guy that I want the ball in his hands all the time. I want him to be able to be opportunistic, attack and transition. Um, he's kind of like a, I think like Kerwin Roach, is like an interesting comparison for Davis where like he can hit an outside shot, but really not his game. He's very athletic and, uh, you know, but, but not really a point guard. And I think, you know, instead he just hasn't had the breakout year that people have been waiting for and waiting for since that solid freshman campaign. I'm hopeful that Davis can take some steps forward, but I do think they need help at the point guard position. I am high on Noah Tate, a six, three freshman top 100 ish recruit. And uh, I think he could make an impact. But at the end of the day, I think Davis raising his level of play, getting improvement from the likes of Spencer Jones, who had a really solid freshman season, combined with the front court with Williams and De Silva, makes this seem very interesting. But I'm concerned that perhaps Jared Haas kind of caught lightning in a bottle, particularly with a team that, like, essentially did the bare minimum, didn't really win any big games, any they, they, they beat Oregon at home on February 1st, and that was like their only win of note the entire season. They kind of, you know, they, they, they blew Oklahoma out on a neutral when Oklahoma was still finding its way. They, you know, played a pretty light non-conference. So it was kind of hard to evaluate just how good Stanford even was last year, and that was with a first-round pick in Tyrell Terry. I'm a little concerned about that, but I think the talent level is there to say, you know, this is a team that is recruiting at a very high level, and that will serve them well. So I think I'm higher on Stanford than you are. I think kind of the, the, the main reasons why. So in terms of losing Tyrell Terry, I mean, this is a huge loss. I think, you know, looking at my top 20 or my rough draft of my top 100 right now, I think with Terry, I would have put Stanford fifth. Uh because I currently have Tennessee fifth, and I don't feel great about that whatsoever. Um, I I think this this whole lineup coming back and um, moving Wills off the bench, putting in a five star like Zaire Williams in at the five, I think that 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 was top top five uh, potential there. Um, point point guard is is a huge issue, right? Davis has been wild; he's been largely ineffective as a point guard, and you're gonna have him, Wills, and Zaire Williams. Williams, all being creators, all handling the ball. Um, kind of a poor man's version of what Oregon's going to do. I think Zaire Williams is the best, certainly the best prospect out of all the Oregon and Stanford wing players. Uh, but but the Oregon guys have a little more cohesion, a little more shooting. Um, but I I think the, the positive the, the positive is going for Stanford right now. Um, Front court is really strong, right? You have an NBA prospect now and uh, Spencer Jones, who can really space the floor. You have a, a second-round prospect. 
Uh, Oscar De Silva, you mentioned, had a, ma- a major breakout last year as a junior. And then between those two and Davis and Wills, those guys have started a lot of games for Stanford. They've played a ton of minutes. Uh, Wills and Davis, I think, have been, st- have been starters their whole career. Jones was obviously a starter last year as a freshman, and then De Silva, as a sophomore and junior, was a full-time starter. So these guys have played a ton of minutes together. Um, and, and hopefully adding a little offensive punch, a little shooting, a little creating in the form of Zaire Williams um, can, can really open up their offense. The offense is probably going to be worse, but I don't necessarily think the defense is going to be worse. Right? They were seventh in defense last year. I think getting a little bigger, um, switching out Williams for Terry, I don't think their defense should be much worse. Um, and then their, their their bench is also, wouldn't call it good, but it's certainly not a weakness, right? You're you're, you're returning two um, two role players with a Jaden Delaire and Lucas Kazunas, who were in the rotation last year, and you have two top 100-ish freshmen with stretch four Max Merle, and you mentioned no, uh, Noah Tates, who I know a lot of people like besides yourself as well, and then Michael O'Connell was one of the few late stock risers, I guess based on his high school footage as a uh, combo guard, where he, he ended up near the top 100, uh, despite being a completely nondescript recruit for most of his high school career. Um, so I think with all that experience, all that talent, I think that they can overcome a little question at, at a point guard enough to be a 8-9-10 seed. I think we agree on like their tier. I'm just a little more like I think there's a little more variance in terms of like I'm a little more I'm a little less sold on Haas. I'm a little less sold on you know how they rebound post Terry. I'm a little less you know under I'm, I'm I'm a little less confident as to how good they actually were last season. But I think there's an easy case to be made for this being a top 35 ish team for having you know a clear path to the NCAA tournament for having you know plenty of depth and talent and experience, you know, mixed up between the roster, you know, I think on paper when you say, okay, you got to, you know, got one star senior, one really good returning senior, five-star freshman, breakout sophomore candidate and Spencer Jones, like that's a tournament team when you kind of add up the pieces. And, you know, as, as for Haas, I mean, if uh, anyone was a listener last year to the podcast, pre, pre-coronavirus, it feels like it was years ago. I mean, I, I was selling Stanford from, from, from the get-go. I, I was never a buyer in Stanford. Um, I, I do not think Haas has done a good job. But this team has, I think, clear NCAA uh, capability. And, and if he makes it this year, you know, his job sh- certainly should be safe. They have another five-star coming in to replace Zaire Williams and uh, Harrison Ingram, who's uh, lower-ranked. But um, hopefully guys like Will's. And, and Jones and some of these bench guys will, will be back next year. Um, so so he's got Stanford moving in the right direction as long as they can make the tournament this year. If, if not, I think he, he should definitely be fine. Agreed. So I think there might be uh, some questions as far as what type of movement is actually going to happen um, this season with the coaching carousel. Next we have team number Five, um, Kevin has them four. I, I have them five. And that's Colorado. Um, so I'm probably lower on the buffs than uh, you are. I, I 
had them just hanging on to the bubble. Um, they were they they really came down to earth toward the end of last year. So, started off strong. You know, they they were one of the few teams to beat Dayton. Uh, slumped at the finish. I think they lost to Washington State on the day that the uh, sports world ended, the day that college basketball ended, um, in a game that no one was paying attention to. Um, and while they have a first-team all-Pac-12 caliber guy and a McKinley Wright, um, they are losing Tyler Bay early to the NBA. It's a huge loss. I mean, he, he was so important at, at that power forward spot. He, he could rebound. He could stretch the floor a little. Um, he was athletic. And they're, they're going to replace that important skill set, you know, with the rebounding and the defense and all, with Jariah Horn, who was who one of the best grad transfers on the market. He, he's a top 15 grad transfer, one of the best power forwards, certainly, uh, combo forward types. Uh, but he, he's not going to bring the same level of physicality, the same rebounding and defense. He, he's, he's more of a perimeter player, more of a shooter. Um, so, so while that was probably the best possible outcome that they could have hoped for, uh, it's not a, a, a like-to-like comparison. Um, and then they're also going to be losing um, Lucas Seiwert and Shane Gatling, who were important pieces. Um, so probably Maddox Daniels, who's a JUCO guy, averaged three points a game last year. He he steps into that shooting guard spot. They're going to need eight, nine points a game for him. Well, but ultimately, the reasons for optimism here for, for, for Colorado, where there are three, three returning veterans who have played a ton of minutes. Um, we, we mentioned them becoming... Right, who's first team all Pac-12 potential, and also Evan Batty, who's a really fun player. He's like the undersized, kind of overweight big man who's who's super skilled. Um, he'll be back playing the center spot, and then Deshaun Schwartz on, on the wing, who's who's a versatile kind of multi-positional guy who can also shoot uh, from from the perimeter. So those those three guys are really going to determine um, Colorado's outcome, and then how Dryer Horn fits in there at the uh, power. Yeah, I think one of the relatively interesting things will be this this freshman class, right? I think Horn will be a fine kind of plug-and-play guy. He can stretch the floor. Um, you, you can pair him with Evan Batty up front. Um, you know, and as you said, one of the better grad transfers, I think, slept on because he's not a star. He's not going to be a star. He's not, you know, not the mid-major guy who averaged, you know, 20 points a game or Right, like, 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 theoretically, Colorado in a normal year could have added, like, you know, I'm trying to think of, like, those power card grad transfer from the market, but, like, a Trudier Bile or someone like that. You're like, okay, well, you know, he, you know, I was 14 and 7, or you know, a guy who averaged, you know, 16 and 8, and you're like, okay, well, how exactly does that fit? And and you sit there, and you go, okay, well, okay, now we, now we have a guy from a top 75 team who averaged 11 and 5, was very productive, made threes, like does it does pretty much everything you want out of a out of a front court player out of like a plug and play foreman and these guys just kind of get over over you know overlooked I think it's important not to overlook him having a senior point guard in McKinley Wright I think is really helpful and I know that Colorado is pretty high on its recruiting class like I understand that they tend to um, they 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 tend to and we talked about this um, before on the podcast but like. They're very willing to roll the dice on kids that aren't necessarily your traditional, you know, elite, you know, high-level recruit. But I know there's excitement about Tristan De Silva 
um, who I think could be a very good player. Um, and, you know, there's also excitement about, you know, guys like Jabari Walker, who's, you know, first will combo forward. Keyshawn Bartholomew was a, a pretty good recruit before he, you know, before he committed late and he didn't really have a chance to build out his entire recruiting, um, you know, portfolio because he visited campus and was like, I think I'm going to stay. Man, I'm, I'm not going home. It's pretty fantastic. So I think they have enough depth. They have a really good point guard to build around. You know, Tad Boyle, I think, will have these guys defending. I'm concerned about the loss of Bay, but this is a team that, again, was really good on, on the glass last season. Really good, you know, free throw margin. Those are, the, those are the hallmarks of a winning basketball team. And regardless of the you know, crash start at the end of the year, I'm still buying this as an NCAA tournament caliber club and top 40 team. So Kevin, lucky for you, I I just finished ranking uh, all all the grad transfers. I, I did the top top sixty grad transfers from this year. I, after six drafts, I think I, I I've landed on my final official rankings. And really, the only power forward who was better than Andrea Horn was Justin Smith, uh, who was off to Arkansas, who was a late add to the portal. And now, if if you want to kind of get flexible with the positions and say, okay, maybe we could call Seth Towns a power forward. He's he's better than Horn. Let's say Jordan Bruner, who's going to play center for Alabama. But if uh, he's a power forward, he's probably better than Horn as well. Um, but that's that's pretty much it. And then after, you know, guys who I've who ranked a little lower than Horn, um, who are like real power forwards. I mean, you could say EJ Anasicki going to Tennessee. Probably come off the bench as like a, a sixth man there, uh, or a seventh man. Uh, Brandon Johnson's in Minnesota might be a starter. Brandon Johnson's the perfect example of the transfer I'm talking about. Right, the guy who put up good numbers on like a sub 200 team. Exactly. Uh, Vance Jackson's an, a uh, another one who, who who's more of a stretch big. I guess he's more similar to, to Horn, uh, but. Obviously, further away from from Tyler Bay, um, Rap Ivanowskis is going to play some four for Cincinnati, but he's not great. Uh, um, and go a little defense with like PJ Horn or Justin Mutz, but again, uh, Colorado did did much better than that. And then, you know, in a similar mold to Brandon Johnson, you have Jalen Johnson for um, Mississippi State via St. Louis and Louisiana Lafayette. The, the a, yeah, another guy who put up pretty good numbers um, at multiple mid-major type stops. Agreed. All right, should we go to Arizona? Absolutely. All right, Arizona is a very interesting team, sort of in transition. Uh, Sean Miller realized that he couldn't drop the bag in the United States, so he grabbed some traveler's checks, he headed abroad, and he brought in all of the international transfers, or all international imports, not transfers. Uh, this looks like a Gonzaga roster with the number of them on the roster, whether it's Kirk Creesa, the point guard, um, and then the pair of forwards in Azulis and Tautvillis, uh, Tubelis, uh, Chibet Goriner from Turkey. Uh, I mean, this is this is all international. Paris, Paris import Daniel Bacho, uh, and... These guys will need to contribute right away because this is a team that does lose a lot from last season. 
They grad, they, they, they depart. Zeke Naji, who is a terrific freshman, one and done. Josh Green, another one and done. Nico Mannion, the star point guard, one and done. I think you would have expected Mannion and Green to go pro. Naji was definitely on the fringes of that in the preseason. And he was the best of the three. So that is a, you know, that is an impact loss in terms of what you're developing. You already are losing Dylan Smith. You're already losing a guy, a couple of grad transfers who are in your rotation, Stone Gettings and Max Hazard, another senior in Chase Jeter. So all of a sudden, you know, it, you're, you're down to a roster that's only returners are Jamal Baker, who just, you know, played 15, 20 minutes a game and fired away from three. And uh, a pair of rotation big men in Ira Lee, Christian Coloco. Coloco is a guy whose numbers don't like pop off a page from his freshman season, but I always thought that he looked much more comfortable on the floor than you would have expected a you know top 100, but not like truly elite recruit seven footer whose build is very raw. So um, with that, they need these newcomers, whether that's the the freshman or James Akinjo, the Georgetown transfer who maybe who will be eligible. From the start of the season, Terrell Brown, the grad from Seattle, is a you know big point is a point guard, but he can't really shoot it. That's a concern. And then they also had a five-star transfer from Nevada and Jordan Brown, who I know you're buying stock in, but he was really up and down as a freshman at Nevada. Didn't even really he really fell out of the rotation at times behind you know in favor of Trey Porter on a team that um, was definitely disappointing. And he only averaged three points a game on that Nevada team, but it was still a Mountain West team that, you know, lost in the first round of the NCAA tournament. And uh, Jordan Brown averaged three and two. So we'll see right. what happens. I'm, again, I think you can buy the Brown stock. I think you can buy a Kinjo stock. There's there's pieces here, but, like, it's almost entirely new faces. And I think that has to be, you know, a question mark, particularly given the challenges of just getting a team together from inter- overseas for the summer with the pandemic. I mean, Kevin, we we talked way before Jordan Brown's freshman year where it was like, okay, Jordan Brown's going to play the four. And we both said, uh, no, he's not. He's like, he's not even going to start. Trey Porter is a very good player and a fifth-year senior. Trey, Trey Porter is going to start. Brown will be the backup. Then the next year, Brown will be the starter. And you were right on, and you said it you know, multiple times on the podcast. I'm sure you've said it multiple times this year about Arkansas, where Moss is going to play like six or seven guys. And everyone can... So I should look down exactly what we knew was wrong. Now, we we thought he was going to get more minutes than uh, Treshawn Terman, but, but Terman was a little bit better. Um, and now I'm going to Arizona. I mean, um, Loco did did show flashes in, in the limited minutes, especially down the stretch. Uh, but you know, he he was only a, a three star recruit. He 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 was only 187 in, in the composite, um, coming in as a very very raw sophomore. I think he'll be a solid backup to Brown. Uh, but but I expect Brown Brown to come in average double figures. Uh, um, I think he's going to be a really nice fit next to as as well as Tabellus, the, the higher ranked of the. Tabellus twins, uh, he he comes in around as like a top seventy recruit, but his style of play, of like a kind of foreman who can put the ball on the floor and uh, can uh, shoot a little bit, I think that's going to fit really well with Brown. Get 
Kansas Arizona team, another guy who can attack from the perimeter. Uh, but the the fortune of Arizona, I think, is going to come down to James Kinjo, who has proven to be a very good player. I think think he may have even been Biggie's freshman of the year, uh, but he hasn't really been on any good teams. Um, Georgetown kind of limped to the stretch, but still they were better without him, really. Um, if if McClung and Yurt 7 were healthy, Georgetown was definitely better without Akinjo. I know Bayheim made his remarks about Akinjo, but uh, this, this, this is his time. He's clearly the, the best player, I think, the best scorer. Um, going to be the, the, the primary creator on offense. He's going to average the most points a game. This is his time to really prove that he can lead a winning team because his Arizona team has talent. You have a physical guard in uh, Terrell Brown who averaged like 20 points a game at Seattle. Not a great shooter, but he can defend, he can attack. And then you have a spot-up shooter and a, a Jamal Baker who's the leading returning scorer after Arizona lost his top six scores from last year. Uh, so I think the, the starting line, that makes a ton of sense. It fits. I think the, the bench has a lot of upside with top 50 recruit Dale and Terry. And I've seen a lot of people really like Kirk Krissa as the backup point guard, as a facilitator. You got Lee and Coloco there in the front court. The issue with Arizona, though, is I think when, when you line them up against other bubble teams, they're a team that I, I thought I was going to have in. But, but, but when I compare them to Syracuse and Minnesota and Western Kentucky and S- San Diego State, Cincinnati, for me, they 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 slipped it into the NIT. Uh, I I have them about a one or a two seed right now in the NIT. That that area of my rankings isn't super super well refined right now, but I think the roster fits pretty well. I think Brown will, will, will have a breakthrough year, uh, because overall I think it puts them on the outside looking into the tournament. I think. The talent, from a talent standpoint, they're better than those bubble teams you listed. I think they're probably better than Colorado, even from the talent standpoint. But the the, the experience meshing together, the fact that you know Kinjo hasn't won, Brown hasn't really done it yet at the college level, right? Like all those all these international guys are kind of inter, inter, getting intersected with the. You know, with 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 these 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 potential breakout guys, it's just it's just a lot to to work through. I'd feel much better if they still had Brandon Williams. You know, absolutely. Williams is like, and there's no reason they can't get Brandon Williams production elsewhere, or at least close to it. But like, just having like a proven okay, this guy can get you 12 in the Pac-12 is you know, very important. I think if you compare them position by position with uh, Colorado, and unless Colorado's freshman um, really bolsters that bench, I, I think Arizona has the better bench, but, but Colorado, I think, beats them on almost every other front. Right? I, I think you take McKinley right over Akinjo. I think you take... Um, so for, for, for the Colorado side, I think you take Schwartz over uh, Terrell Brown. Probably Horn is a fifth-year senior over Tabellis as a international freshman. Batty and Brown's going to be tough. Batty's more proven. Brown is more upside. Probably better defender, Brown. Um, and you give Arizona Baker over Daniels. Uh, but I think it depends on if you're buying one of these freshmen as an NBA prospect. Some people are with Tabellis particularly. 
I don't know about NBA prospect for him, but um, I do like his style of play. But I think I think Arizona's talent is right because like he, if you compare them to say Syracuse. Would so I would take probably a Kinjo over over Gerard, right? Gerard ha, ha, had a great freshman year, but then you're taking Bayheim over Baker, you're taking Griffin over Brown, uh, Dolezal versus Tabellus is a interesting one, interesting styles, and then you take Brown over. Uh, so 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 it is close. Uh, but we we've seen both Syracuse and the Colorado. You you could go either way with a, comparing their talent level to Arizona. But Arizona has lost their six leading scorers and is bringing in you know a completely new roster. Right, which is a very big challenge in the you know in a, in a year where off seasons have been. We've got a motorcycle flying. <laughs> Pot, the, 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 the the windows are open because the heat is on in the apartment building. You can't get this stuff. Uh, but anyway, live in large Arizona. I think very high variance. You know, this could be, you know, I think a team that that winds up looking like the Arizona team from a couple years ago that really really struggled, or this could be an Arizona team that is you know very very good and winds up in the NCAA tournament, maybe stick in the top twenty five. It's a uh, again high variance. Next, the team that, that we both have seventh is USC. And USC at one point was looking really strong. And then their projected probably leading score, definitely leading perimeter score, uh, or, or leading backcourt score, and Elijah Weaver leaves to Dayton where he says he wants to play point guard. He would have started the two average 12, 13 points a game. Um, he's out. And now... Andy Enfield did a decent job at patching together a roster here, getting um, three grad transfers. Uh, but the the main success of this team is going to be determined with their star brother duo of the Mobleys, right? Where Isaiah Mobley was kind of uh, underutilized last year. When you look at team with Rakosovic, who was one of the best big men in the country, and then Onyeka Agangu, who was even better. And it's going to be a top seven or eight NBA draft pick. Um, both those guys had to play, and they had to play together, and that kind of left Mobley either trying to play on the wing or being left out. Now he's a featured guy offensively, and then his younger brother, Evan Mobley, is in the 2021 draft will be a top 10 pick at least. Incredible upside. Protects the rim, physical specimen, soft touch. This this team's going to go as far as those guys take them. Um, they need both those guys to play at an extremely high level. The the grad transfer should be okay. Um, Isaiah White from uh, Utah Valley gives them a little ver- versatile piece. Average 14 and 7, but his shooting fell off a cliff as a sophomore. Uh, U- Utah Valley was pretty down last year. Su- sub-250 team, if, if a memory serves. Uh, you get Taj Edie on a by low after he had a down year for Santa Clara. But the year prior, he put up 15 points a game. He, I, I think he probably starts at the two. 
um, which, which is kind of shocking that USC couldn't get a better replacement for, for Weaver because uh, they, they had Edie sign up to be like a seventh-man uh, combo guard. And then they get Chavez Goodwin, who's a really nice pickup as their backup center um, after a strong career at Wofford. And then they have the San Jose State transfer, Noah Bauman, who's pretty much just a, th- a three-point shooter to uh, stretch the floor. You got uh, Max Agongbelo, uh, 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 who's in the Benny Boatwright archetype, not nearly as strong as a freshman year as uh, Boatwright had five or six years ago, but he, he's someone to monitor. But overall, the the success of USC is going to um, also depend on Ethan Anderson, who as a three-star recruit was the surprise winner of the starting point guard battle last year. And you know his his numbers look poor, but 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 for a three-star recruit to win the starting point guard spot on a NCAA tournament team, like an eight or nine seed type team, and that's that's really impressive. We see, you know, all these freshman point guards, guys who are even much higher ranked than Anderson, who are put in a similar role, really struggle. You know, guys like Matt Coleman, uh, Kyron Cartwright. You know, we can sit here all, day, uh, you know, we can sit here all day and just name freshman point guards who were super highly ranked who, who didn't live up to expectation. I I expect a big bounce back from, from Anderson and think his numbers will look more like a Pac-12 starting point guard. But kind of in in totality, they're fine at the 1, 4, and 5. The, the, the patchwork at the 2 and 3 has me worried. I think they're down a perimeter go-to score. Um, I think that's going to doom this USC team to the NIT. I think the main challenge I have with USC beyond like that when you really look hard at this roster, it's not that talented outside of the Mobleys is like Evan Mobley is more prospect than player right now. Absolutely. If Evan Mobley was Cade Cunningham, I'd be like, all right, you know, you got Cade and you just filled out the rotation with, you know, a bunch, bunch of grad transfers. You know, none of them are great, but they don't have to be Cade, you know, Mobley's really good. He's going to average, you know, you know, 18 and 10 and three blocks, whatever. You'd be like, all right, well, we're cool. We're rolling, whatever. But I think Evan, I don't think Evan's that guy, right? Like, we watched some tape of um, Sierra Canyon versus Rancho Cucamonga and, uh, or Rancho Christian, not Rancho Cucamonga. I'm an idiot. Um, you know, we watched some tape of, of, of Evan against some other teams as well. Like, he's not not there yet, right? He makes pop passes. He's very uh, very switchable, can really move, do a lot of different things with the ball. But, like, he fades in games. He runs around the perimeter like he's, like he's a wing. That's not going to do it. I think that is a scary thing for this group. Um, I think Ethan Anderson's going to have a really nice year. I think, you know, all those Juco guys could average, you know, or not Juco guys, grad transfer could average like six to eight points a game and be productive and help you. But this is a team without a star. And quite honestly, like, I'm not sure that Mobley's that guy. I'm not sure that he's going to be more impactful than Onyeka Okongwu, quite frankly. I mean, if, if you told me to, that... I'd get 16 and nine while shooting 62% from the field and blocking almost three shots a game for Mobley. 
would you say would you would you buy over or under on that? I'm pretty sure I would buy under. Yeah. So like absolutely. That's that's scary. And I think that's that's a major concern. So maybe you get a breakout from Pong below, maybe you get a breakout from Anderson, maybe even Isaiah Mobley, who was solid as a freshman, but like I'm really not buying it with this group. I'm thinking uh, Anderson's probably low or sorry, high single digits, better assist numbers. I think Isaiah Mobley probably gets to like 14, 15 points a game. I think Evan Mobley's probably like 10 points a game. And then the rest will just be patchwork, like six and seven here and there. Um, I wonder if, the, if, if they're going to try for a waiver for Drew Peterson, the transfer from Rice. Uh, he wasn't on Goodman's pending waiver list last time I checked, but now that they're giving off a free year, I mean, I, I feel like this probably waiver is being filed as as we speak at the last minute to try to get some guys to uh, not not waste this year sitting out. Yeah, agreed. Um, so I would have actually had Washington, who I believe is our number eight, uh, over USC, had it not been for the Naziah Carter news. Um, should I should I take the take the Huskies now? Go for it. But uh, Carter's not done for the year, though, right? Not necessarily, but they're anticipating at least starting the season without him, and I think it could be a while. Be a while when it's a university policy concern. Yikes! Yes. Yikes, indeed. Still, not all hope is lost with Washington, although things have really stalled for our good friend Mike Hopkins in Seattle after an amazing start. They go 15-17, and 5-13 in the league, uh, despite having you know two future NBA players, Isaiah Stewart, Jaden McDaniels. Uh, things really didn't, didn't match, and they really fell apart. In Pac-12 play, once Quade Green was out, Green was a guy who I thought wasn't great last. You know, when when he was on the floor, you know, he was shooting the ball great, but he was still you know turning it over. Didn't play great in some of their biggest games, but the offense really faltered once he was no longer around to um, kind of steward it into the correct direction. And you know, they desperately need him back, 100% locked in after dealing with those uh, academic issues. I've always said that you know if you're failing, if you're failing out in college basketball, you're not failing out because you're you know not smart enough. You're failing out because you're not willing to work, and it doesn't. You're not willing that, to show up. Yes. Again, I I go to Northwestern, one of the you know better academic schools in the country, um, and you know one of the harder places for college athletes to get into. I try not to. Bra- I'm not bragging here when I say I know. I I watch all of these athletes. I'm, I'm just. I'm just saying it. Like I, I see an athlete on campus, and I know that they. I know that it's really not that hard to pass a Northwestern class. So if you can pass a Northwestern class, pass a pass a Washington class, pass anywhere in the country. So again, more about effort than anything else. So that's a concern. But if they get Green back, he will be the starting point guard. He will be the best player. Um, but a pair of transfers, I think, will be critical for this group. Um, they have three, but I think the two in particular I'm really looking at are Eric Stevenson. We're waiting on a waiver, but I think he will be eligible, um, especially given Jamarius Burton for Wichita State in a similar situation with Greg Marshall. Um, did get the waiver. And then Jaron Brooks, who I think is a really interesting, you know, stock buy, stock buy if you're a uh, 
you're a Pac-12 fan, this guy who was really productive in high school basketball, was a top 75 recruit, um, you know, great size, didn't didn't do a ton at USC as a freshman, kind of embroiled in the uh, controversy uh, regarding the FBI scandal. But a, a year off does him well. I think he will be a very productive player in the front court to pair with Hamir Wright up, up there. Um, I think their skill sets will match fairly well. Beyond that, I think, you know, it's it part of it is just going to be, you know, development. Is Steven is a Stevenson if they can get Carter back, is Stevenson, Carter, and Quade enough to get you to the Francis events of LA tournament? Maybe so. I would love to see a breakout year from one of Jamal Bay and Raekwon Battle. I think that would be the type of thing that really moves the needle. Yeah, so for me, I have I have Washington ninth. I have Utah in front of them. So they're losing their basically their entire front court. Jaime Wright is back. He's played a lot in his career. He's not super productive. And he's always been like the four man. Now I guess he's a starting five. And you have Brooks, who hasn't done anything but is a former top recruit. Those those guys are going to be the centers, but that, that that's very different from the typical Syracuse two-three center, right? It, their 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 center is usually more like your Isaiah Stewart, um, or like a shop locker. But these guys are more of like kind of six eight six nine skinny guys. Uh, so that's gonna be a weird one to watch. The backcourt should be good, right? Because Quade put up great numbers last year. Washington was playing well with them. Uh, they obviously torpedo without him, but these, but these guys like Battle, Sahonis, Bay, they all got a lot of playing time last year. Um, you know, we're we're able to to uh, cut their teeth. Um, and, and Stevenson's played at. Uh, the issue though is, you know, kind of extending the the conversation from from the front court. This team in no way resembles like a Syracuse zone type team. Right, you're gonna have a couple of pretty small guards. I know Quade is small. How how big is Sahonis? Let me pull up the roster. Um, Sahonis is six three. So you're gonna have six foot and six three at the top of your zone. Eric Stevenson is not super long. Carter would be okay, I think. Carter's what? Carter is. 6'6", six, six, yeah, and the Bay, Bay is 6'6". Six, six. Uh, but you don't have that kind of characteristic length in this zone. And then out, out, outside of Quade Green, not a whole lot in terms of creation. Sahonis was okay last year. Stevenson, I think, is more shooter than creator. I've never been super high on him since, since he called me an idiot um, for, for having him coming off the bench for Wichita State when he did come off the bench. Um, like he'll he'll be a nice piece, but pl- playing at, at at the bottom of the zone, uh, it's not not super imposing. His overall talent level, I mean, Quade Green's fine as your best player, but is Eric Stevenson or Hamia Wright as your second best player? Is that something that you're comfortable with? I'm not. No, that is a excellent point.
I don't know. Honestly, no. Should we go to Utah? Utah. I, I have the eighth. You have the ninth. Um, they're they're returning a lot from last year. They would be returning almost everything except both Gotch left for for Minnesota. Um, but they got you know really strong performances from from young players, most notably freshmen. Brandon Carlson and Ryland Jones. Uh, Carlson is someone who, who who I really liked when I watched. Uh, he, he's really big. He moves pretty well. Blocks shots. You know him and his uh, front court mate Riley Batten is back as well. And then uh, Timmy Allen was one of the more underrated, under the radar major performers in the whole high major world. Seventeen points a game last year not a great shooter but he was really score putting him on on the wing and then you have Ryland Jones back at point guard and then Plummer who was kind of like a scoring scoring guy off the bench he can move into the uh, starting line of average eight eight points a game shot 42 percent from three this past year but then I've seen people be pretty bullish on two of their newcomers uh, Pele Larson who's the international kind of versatile athletic wing and then Ian Martinez who I believe his dad is one of the assistant coaches um, he, he was a very highly rated recruit I think top, top 75 um, so not quite enough to get Utah back to the tournament uh, but with, with this returning continuity they were about 110th-ish in Ken Palm last year you know, returning four starters adding a couple strong recruits and ele- elevating a key bench piece this starting lineup I think that there's enough talent here especially with a potential breakout sophomore year from uh, Brandon Carlson at the center spot uh, I think NIT is certainly attainable and I think uh, the Utes could be a strong NIT team with sights on the NCAA tournament in 21-22 yeah they definitely scream NIT to me I think one of the main concerns that I have is just again like they're still pretty young. I'm somewhat confused as to why they didn't go get a grad transfer wing to replace Gatch. And I get he left a little late, but like, even with the guy like Martinez coming in, there were so many guys that come across the desk, even if it's like a Don Carey or, you know, someone old who could give you 15 minutes a game. I think I would feel better better about this group, particularly because, you know, Jackson Brenchley was not very good as a freshman. Jones was beat up all the time because I think he weighs, you know, almost nothing. I mean, the guy is, the guy looks like you kind of like pick him up and throw him around the yard. Uh, so grabbing a grad transfer, you know, maybe just like a combo guard who could have played some point, played some two, fill that gash role would have been, would have been beneficial. I think that, that does leave me some concern. But to me, you know, really the upside is is in, like you said, a breakout for Carlson, who does move very well, as you said, and Martinez, the, the true freshman, whether he can make an impact right away. But not a ton of juice here. Things have definitely stalled out a little bit for uh, Larry Kostowiak. They haven't been, you know, they just haven't been relevant in the last couple seasons. Um, you know, sub 100, over 110 pommies the past two years. Year before that, they never really were in NCAA tournament contention. Um, went to the NIT. 
um, and made that run in the NIT. That was the Justin Bibbins, Cedric Bearfield, Tyler Rawson group. Um, but they have not been to the NCAA tournament since, I believe, 2016. So it's been a little wire for Larry Kostowiak after really having it going in the uh, Kyle Kuzma, Jakob Pertl, um, Brandon Taylor, Jordan Loveridge era. Right, but they, they lost Pertl after two years. They, uh, they lost Kuzma a, a year early. And I think Dylan Wright, they got all the, all the eligibility out of him. Uh, but you know, they, had, they had three NBA guys at once, and two of them left early. And that's, that's tough to replace at Virginia, let alone Utah. Right? Like Virginia last year, if they had one of Ty Jerome and Kyle Guy, you know, they're, they're not clinging to their tournament life for most of the year. Uh, I think if Utah got an, a, another year or two of Jakob Pertl, if he, he didn't get so good so, so quickly, I think Utah might still be humming along. But that's just how it works. Uh, unless you're Duke or Kentucky or a very fortunate second-tier blue blood, um, can't really overcome those uh, NBA defections. Yeah, no. Absolutely. It's, it's a roadblock every every single season. Um, let's see, who is next? You have Cal now. Okay, so I have a conversation. Incoming. I think I have Washington State here at 10, which would be a lot easier if CJ Ellaby was back, but I still think they're the best team, mostly because Kyle Smith is just going to win you random games. Mark Fox again, was like the most white-bread, bland hire one could have possibly made. But I do think, given the absolute dumpster fire he inherited, going 14-18 and 18 and 7-11 and 11 in the league does deserve some credit. Uh, Matt Bradley turning into a, you know, really a star was huge. You know, he had a solid freshman campaign, averaged 10 points a game, but really blossomed as a sophomore, averaged 17 and a half a game. Um, you know, the real thing that they need to avoid is they need to keep him for four. Um, yeah, you know, they they cannot they cannot deal with a uh, early departure here because they were very thin beyond him last season, and they only get thinner with the departure of a pair of seniors in Paris Austin and Kareem South. This is kind of a one piece at a time rebuild. They do have a pair of grad transfers to um, kind of keep things relatively at at bay here with Mikhail Foreman and Ryan Betley. Neither guy was super highly regarded on the grad market, but our plug-and-play guys, former starting point guard at Stony Brook, Bentley coming off an injury, but was a really solid wing at Yale. No, no. Penn. 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 Thank you. Navy blue. Uh, regardless, six foot five can slash and cut and do a lot of different things. Smart player will fit in at the Cal you know, academics. So, you know, from that perspective, I think, Cal is set up nicely to have a backcourt that isn't a, isn't a wreck. Maybe they get you know, growth in year two from Joel Brown, who we both watched last summer and said, yeah, well, you don't know why this guy is a four-star recruit and like well-regarded and was like good at Brewster. This guy He's a game manager. Huh? He's a game manager. Yes. But 19 minutes a game as a freshman, 34% shooting. Uh, you know, just doesn't really impact the game that much. I don't know what be Sabidi mold, um, but you know they're still thin. I know that there's some excitement about 
the big kid, uh, Lars Thiemann, who averaged three and two, is a freshman seven footer from Germany. You know, he has he has the breakout year. Like you can again, you can talk yourself into them getting out of this ten through twelve tier, but there's there's still not a ton. The talent level still needs to rise quite a bit. Yeah, I think that the issue is really in the backcourt, where it's that patchwork uh, grad transfers where Foreman was a good scoring guard in the American East. Bentley was a double-figure scorer, at least at, at Penn. Solid team, because you can shoot it. Um, but that's just not going to get it done in, in, in the Pac-12. Um, Bradley's great. Antisivich played a ton last year, shot it well. Uh, you, you mentioned Tymon. He was someone who was very highly regarded as an international player. Prospect, I think in year two he probably has a strong year. Kelly was a starter last year. He's back. Split that five spot with Timon. Uh, but overall, the talent level's low. That that patched together backcourt is you know leaks of desperation. Uh, Mark Fox trying to steal a few more wins. Uh, um, great player, but teams a low low ceiling. Not a ton of clear breakout guys. Not a ton of really strong recruits. Um, just really looks like a sub-100 team. Yeah. Do we have Washington State 11 or 12? Um, next is Washington State. I, I personally have them 12. Um, okay. But I know a lot of people are high on them based on Kyle Smith being a proven do-more-with-less coach. Right, that's the argument for me. Yeah. From his time in San Francisco. Um, they did pretty well on the recruiting trail. I know um, Carlos Rosario, who was a late ad for them, he was top 150. The international um, Andrzej Jakomowski, I think he came in at right around the top 100. Um, also saw some good things being said about Jefferson Koulibaly uh, coming in as well. Uh, but overall, this team's talent level is low. Their best player is probably Isaac Bonton, who was a junior last year. Um, averaged 15-4, and four, but was very inconsistent. A um, lot of turnovers. Didn't, didn't shoot it great. I remember watching one Washington State game, and he, act, he absolutely went off. Um, I don't, don't remember the exact game, but he, he must have had like almost 30 points. Um, so he's someone who will put up the stats, but I mean, this rest, rest of the roster is you know, filled with guys who either played a little bit last year but weren't highly regarded recruits or guys who are borderline top 100 coming in. Um, I know Tony Miller was a great uh, Division II player who last year averaged uh, seven points a game. He's he, he's a second uh, returning scorer. Then Noah Williams had a solid freshman year as well. Uh, but that's just not enough to uh, build around it in the Pac-12 I think this team probably has the least amount of talent in the league. Um, future is pretty bright. I mean, they've gotten some solid recruits. They have a good coach in there. And guys like Williams um, are, are still very young. I just don't – right? Like, at least Cal and Oregon State have a really good player with Bradley and Thompson. I, I think both, both of those teams have a little more upside too. I – I just don't don't really see what moves the needle here, uh, unless you're super high on Kyle Smith against the Pac-12 competition. 
I mean, I do think Isaac Bonton moves the needle as much for me as, like, Bradley does. Especially with the ball in his hands, the amount it's going to be. This is just disappointing to lose CJLB, right? Like, they could have had some... They could have really made some moves. Um, I mean, were they going to make it into a tournament? No, but they're probably an IT team with, with LB. And, you know, some of these guys getting a year old, there's been these international guys. It's just, you know, just like I said with Bradley, like, when you're when you're doing the rebuild, you really can't afford... The guy that's getting you know tons of usage and LB, I don't even think was a top 150 recruit, um, but he was very good as a freshman, you know, instant impact guy, and then very good again as a sophomore. Struggled a little bit more with his efficiency, um, but you know, big can handle the ball, good defensively, you know, does it all. I think he's a guy who could, you know, might might be like a two way guy in the NBA, um, but could have stayed another year and really solidified himself in the uh, in the Pac-12, but. Regardless, I think you know maybe maybe get a breakout from a big guy like a Valder Demir, Mark Ovetsky. He's productive in limited minutes. Um, really can't shoot it, but seven one, big Ukrainian guy. Uh, I think again, it's just you know can Bonten create enough shots and then some of these recruits coming in one step at a time lift up this Washington State program. So last year of Oregon State. We do have Oregon State. I should uh, I should yeah, I mean, preface this by saying that I have like very few notes on Oregon State, but in my mind, you know, the talent level is just not high enough. I think, you know, Ethan Thompson is is a nice player. He's six foot five, but you know, can do a lot of different things. But they haven't been very good the last couple of years with much better players around him. And this, 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 this core around him is, you know, maybe a nice year coming up from Jared Lucas. Maybe you get something from Tariq Silver, the Juco guy, or Maurice Kalu, who was, you know, originally went to Oklahoma State, a big, like, playmaking foreman. Um, Silver's a guy who was, like, heavy mid-major interest as, as a Juco guy, and then finally got that, that, that late high-major offer. But, you know, there isn't a ton of talent here. There isn't a, you know, this they didn't just go get like three or four grad transfers who are easy plug-and-play guys. Uh, and they lose one of the more impactful under-the-radar guys in the conference beyond Tinkle in Kyler Kelly, who shot 60% of the field, but more importantly, was one of the best shot blockers in the country. And, you know, they lose that from a team that finished, I think, I think they were nine and nine in the league. Like they weren't very good. Seven and eleven. Oh man. Yeah. So I mean, it's very tough. And I think when you're when you're building out a a program, there's there isn't a lot of juice here, and they didn't they didn't make much of an impact with their newcomers. I would like to see maybe reach a little higher than you know the Warth Alatish and the Tariq Silvers of the world. So they have three starters back, right, with Thompson, who's excellent, and then Reichel and Hollins or, or whatever. So those three guys are going to start. Lucas and Hunt were, were, were rotation guys last year, both are guards. And then Roman Silva, I guess, is the starting center, set, uh, seven foot one, only played seven minutes a game last year. De'Aaron Tucker was a solid recruit who played – 
you know, even less, only three minutes a game. You mentioned Silver was a pretty highly regarded Juco recruit as a shooter. Kalu had legit high major interest coming out of high school. He played at uh, Oklahoma State. Versatile uh, mismatch four-man. So that's all nice and everything, but this doesn't... This, this this doesn't give you much reason for optimism. Like like you said, losing your best player in Trey Tinkle and one of the best shot blockers in the country in Kyler Kelly, both double-figure scores. Tinkle at 19 points a game, Kelly at 11 points a game. From a team... Yeah, let's see what they were in Ken Palm. I don't think that they were top 100. They were, I think. Uh, they, were, they were 87th. Um, so, so you're losing your two best players... Or two of your three... Two of your three best players... Your your best addition of Maurice Kalu is going to average like seven points a game. That's really not enough um, when when you compare the roster to that of you know Washington and Utah. I mean, we were ragging on Washington's front court. Washington's blows Oregon State's out of the water. You know, Hamid would be the second best player on uh, Oregon State. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, let's look big picture of the league as a whole. Um, do we think four bids? Do we think five? So I, think I have, I have five. Yeah. I, the Colorado being like a last four in type of team. Arizona could easily get in. But I, I have them on the outside and you know, USC probably has enough. Raw talent that if like Mobley, if uh, Evan Mobley's awesome and Anderson and Isaiah Mobley make the jump, we think then they could certainly make it. But I'm going with five. I'm going with Oregon, Arizona State, UCLA, Stanford, and Colorado. And then I think I think I agree with five. I agree with those teams as well. We didn't have a ton of disagreement around this league. Um, but I think the coaching carousel in this conference is also certainly worth monitoring because I think it has the potential to be very active and not in the same way that some of these other ones, the retirements, right? Like you're walking through and you're going, Sean Miller is inevitably going to feel the heat at some point for what he's done off the court, let alone the fact that I don't think Arizona fans think he's that good of a basketball coach right now. Uh, you've got, you know, Trey Tinkle or Wayne Tinkle, excuse me, who I think is definitely on the hot seat, um, where his seat is oh. certainly heating up. Oh, he's cooked. Oh yeah. You've got Andy Enfield, who I think is probably, probably cooked if they don't, you know, make it this year because they have Evan Mobley this year. But I don't think he's cooked like they're going to fire him next year. But I think like he's cooked and like he's not turning it around. So you've got those three big jobs, and you've got Bobby Hurley, whose I think name will continue to surface for different jobs. You've got, you know, I don't think Jared Haas is, like, entirely locked in for the future. But you've also got this complicating force of the Pac-12, I think, budgets being the most impacted by what's going on because their TV revenues were already so much lower than so many other conferences. And they're in states that most likely will be slower to bring fans back into the mix um, post, you know, post coronavirus. So I think all of these things, even like Mike Hopkins, not on the hot seat by any means, but like they finished eighth or ninth this year. 
I mean, people are going to start asking some questions that he's going to start having to answer. So there's a lot of movement to come. When it comes, I don't know. But uh, the hot seat is definitely prevalent in this conference. So let's say that Oregon State's definitely going to be open. I think that, that they're the one tr- true definite. Um, who, who are we thinking for some potential names? Maybe m- maybe they don't want to go back to the Montana well and go with Travis DeCure. You know, Russell Turner has been in the mix for a bunch of jobs. Not not quite as high as high major, but he's done a good job at Irvine. Um, Damon Stoudemire, maybe, from Pacific. He gets buzzed a lot because of his career as a player with the um, Portland Trailblazers. That's true. That's a good fit. Um Randy Ray won't won't really jump. Doesn't seem like it at least. If they wait two or three years, like it's like Jeff Linder, if he gets Wyoming rolling, Jeff Linder's a guy who did a fantastic, fantastic job. Um Building Northern Colorado, he's from. They were like the, top seventy-five last year. Yes, they were. <laughs> and he took, he's from the Leon Rice and Randy Ray coaching tree. Both of those names would be potentially in the mix at that uh, Oregon State spot. I'd like to see Linder potentially moving in if he gets you know get get some early success at Wyoming. Um, how about how about some of these uh, Mount Mount West guys? Probably Craig Smith should hold off for better. What about? Um, uh, Nico Medved. Not bad. I don't know if he wants to go all the way west. He's close enough. He's in Colorado now. That's true. But where is he from? I think he went to Colorado. He was on the Colorado State staff. So I think that kind of contributes to where is Nico Medved from? Because it's not like he's recruiting the west. He's recruiting like Texas. Yeah. Nico Medved... Is from Minneapolis. I thought I, I knew that. Yes. And he's never coached west of Colorado State. So. The obligatory Shaka uh, Smart and uh, Frank Martin and Brad Brownell mentions. Yeah. They're in Oregon State's a weird spot where, like, the program has no juice in terms of, like, recruiting. They're in a you know middle of nowhere spot in Corvallis, but at the same time they have really good facilities, no expectations, and uh, you know if you went make the NCAA tournament every five years you'll be set for life. And so this this article from 2019 has Wayne Tickle's salary at two million, not bad, much much different than Pat Chambers with nine hundred thousand. I still don't buy that number. I'm sorry. That that's incredibly low. Like they were throwing out uh, the uh, CBS article was throwing out some potential names like David Cox. Uh, David Cox Probably makes like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars at uh, URI. As I said, it's good A ten money. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Because like Nate Oates was up to like six fifty at Buffalo, and the SUNY schools are never willing to pay. Like. Penn State, you can you can you can find a million dollars more lying around somewhere from the, in the football program couches. See if you can uh, pay a basketball coach some real money. Like Chris Collins is making like two seven, I think. I think Cooley makes over three. <laughs> yeah. 
Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, USC is its own deal. I mean, I don't even know where they would go, but they would have plenty of suitors. Another place where you don't have to be that good to be considered really good. You can recruit anyone. Um, a lot of a lot of appeal to that job. We'll see if Enfield can turn it around. Arizona will have a lot of appeal depending on NCAA sanctions. Although we saw with Chris Mack, that like teams were willing to coaches were willing to roll the dice. Although it's a much different time frame where you know Mack is going to be in year three or four by the time he's actually feeling the sanctions, whereas a new coach might be in year one or two, which makes it difficult to start building the program. But Arizona is a great job, so that's worth mentioning. Five level one violations for the Wildcats. Yeah, we didn't touch on that, but... I mean, I'm done with it. I mean, I I was done with it way before... Uh, you were at seeming, but now I, I guess they could be banned from this tournament, but that's probably a good thing. Right? You got the weird Corona tournament, your borderline should, team anyway. Yeah, they should self-impose this year if they're like 12 and 10. Yeah. <laughs> like, like February 1st tips. Oh, you know, we've been reviewing things. We've been going back and forth into officials. We think it's prudent that we um, self-impose a postseason ban and we fire Sean Miller at the end of the season because we want to you know, ensure that we're showing that we're very compliant. When in reality, even more just because they're twelve and ten. That's the that's the other thing to watch though, is Arizona could essentially fire Sean Miller for cause whenever they want. So do they move? Do are they are they a more likely moving part this off season? In terms of getting a new coach, huh? In terms of getting a new coach, yeah. Well, they wouldn't. So that's, yeah, they wouldn't have to pay the buyout. They'd have the money to then go get a good coach, and the they wouldn't be like being barked at for like wasting resources during the pandemic. And they've wanted to move on, I think, probably for a bit. At least some Arizona people have. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a name off the top of, but I mean, I mean, they should they should command a pretty good coach. I know people were talking about Damon Stoudemire. I think he could shoot higher. Right, yeah. Yeah, he's, he could definitely he's a legend there, but still gotta shoot higher, I think. Yeah, I'm I'm looking now. I don't I don't have a real clear name. Like I don't I don't have like the, the Chris Mack or the Sean Miller or the Chris Holtman. Right, and Musk was the obvious guy a couple years ago when he had that elite Nevada team. Where it looked like the job, a job was that job was going to open that year. Must have done, you know, such an amazing job in Nevada. He was like a slam dunk, and then you know, he winds up at Arkansas instead. I don't really see. I agree. There's not that that guy at that at that spot. I've all, you know, would Steve you Pikele? in Arizona? Well, Sean Miller was at Xavier. I don't think you're. I don't think Steve Pike is getting hired there. Well, then who? Brad Underwood. That is the question. Would they swing at a high major coach? Could they get a high major coach with all the the heat? Frank Martin. Well, that's a classic. <laughs> once, once, once you're mentioned with like the Boston College job, it's like, all right. <laughs> I think. I think you're just being mentioned with everything. Agreed. All right. Anything else on this podcast when we wrap it up? No, that's it.
All right. See you all next week. We keep you posted on these schedules that continue to evolve.